0: Hey everyone, welcome to our talk today. And so we're talking with Scott Sullivan. Scott is the discipleship catalyst for the Georgia Baptist Mission Board. And uh, my name is PJ Dunn and I'm a discipleship consultant in Southwest Georgia. And we are talking about one of our favorite topics today, Scott. We're talking about disciple making and everything around that. And so I'm just gonna dive right in. We're gonna go straight into this and I wanna ask you a question. um, so in your, in your blog that we're going we're gonna to post that in the chat here, uh, you mentioned a verse that really caused you to evaluate your, what you were doing early on in your ministry, and you've been in ministry for a while, so speak, speak to that a little bit more for us.
1: Yeah, PJ, there's, there's a verse that I've mentioned to you guys before, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, and it just says, that And the things that you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses— Invest those with faithful men who will teach others. So mm-hmm. we call it generational discipleship, and it's it's Paul to Timothy to faithful men to others. And I remember being at a conference, um, ten or twelve years into my ministry, early on, in um, Student Leadership University. Jay Strack, Brent Crow, uh, good friends of mine. They they challenged me and said, you know, what are you going to do over the next? 20, 30, 40 years of your ministry that's gonna really make a difference. So look back at the last 10 and what worked? What are you gonna hang your hat on? And man, I was programmed king. And I I was programmed to death. I mean, I could lead conferences and uh, banquets and programming like nobody's business. You know, I was director of YC in Louisiana, ran 6,500 people in each of those. I mean, I just got to looking at it and it was just a pivotal moment in my ministry where I looked and said, you know, I, I think that there are some things about programming that have value, but I can't put all the eggs in that basket. It's not making disciples. It was those families and those teenagers in mm. relationships that I had poured intimately into <clears throat> and that they had invested that with other people that was really making a difference over that period of time. So I just realized the programs weren't producing long-term fruit, the making disciples happens more in relational environments. And PJ, this was backed up by a recent study from Robbie Gallaty and the Southern Baptist Convention. It was a disciple-making task force, and we'll put that link in the chats as well, where they they showed us that we have baptized at the Southern Baptist Convention um, 7.1 million people in the last 20 years. Gosh, when I read that, I was like, that's incredible. And then you followed it by saying with zero increase in attendance. Yeah. So what that said to me is not everything we are doing is wrong and not everything we're doing is bad, but our process, what we are doing can't be considered a success when when what we're doing is not making disciples and we're not seeing the fruit of it.
0: Yeah, and it's such a good point because when you put it, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty for a reason. And so when we go back and we look at that statistic, we would think you would grow, you know, if, if every one of those people reached one person, right? And and we can look at that. Also, somebody uh, in the chat that's also done YEC, just go ahead and do a hashtag in there for us um, mm-hmm. on that. So I, I feel like that just took me back to a memory. Um, my first mosh pit, actually, I think. So that's okay. Um, n- next question. Um, in your opinion, um, you know, what are, what are five, words, concepts, you know, something that just kind of puts together a successful discipleship making strategy. We talk about this a lot. So what would, what would be five takeaways for you?
1: Yeah, and I, I'm super excited about this, PJ, because we actually have a sub team off of our discipleship team that's working on a disciple making strategy process where anyone on our team will be able to sit down with a pastor or leader and help them customize a disciple making process for their church. So there are are five words that we're toying around with right now and we call it the smart strategy. And uh, so the first one would be strategic. So when you think about what we do in the church, the only and the best model would be Jesus. Is what he did, was it strategic? I've been studying through the book of John about the last probably 12 to 15 months. And I was reading through just in the last few days uh, the, those going back through like chapters two through six. Now I was reading where he renames Peter, you know, and then it says he watched Nathaniel's every move. So when he interacted with him, you know, he knew what he was doing. He knew what he was thinking. He brought those things up. Um, he interacted with the Samaritan woman, right? People don't do that. Why would you say that? Why would you do that? Right? Well, everything he was doing was strategic. The feeding of the 5,000. I was reading it this morning in, it said that he told them to sit down in John 6, I believe in verse 10. I was like, why not just speak to them? Why did he say sit? Well, they were tired. Mm-hmm. And he knew that he wanted them to sit because he wanted them to have a, a single focused um, vision on what he was saying. So to have their attention, he needed to be able to do so. If Jesus was, if his focus was intentional and it was in, it was strategic, then what we do should be as well. Second one, the M would be memorable. Simply put, it just means that it needs to be easily learned and understood. We don't only have some complicated process that we've got to go to a book to be able to explain it. You know, our people need to be able to share that with the guy across the street who just moved in. Well, yeah, here's what happens at our church. And you give those three, four, or five nuggets of what it means. The A Um, I really have two words here, PJ, and Matthew Gibbs and uh, Tim Smith and Ray Sullivan and I are really chewing on this. So I'm going to throw out the word attainable. And here's what that means. When we have a strategy, there's a sweet spot that I think it's between a God-sized vision and laziness. Mm. Somewhere in there, there's a sweet spot of where we exist of trying trying to accomplish this thing that we know in our strength, we can't do that this is perfection. And then this other side, when you're doing nothing, right? So yeah. we exist in the tension of the middle. There's another A that I would throw out um, that I think is equally important. And it would be alignment mm. is when you have a strategy, what you're doing is you're telling your church, here's who we are. We're a disciple making church. And, and what, what helps is all of the ministries of your church come underneath the alignment of that strategy. So if it doesn't work, you gotta be willing to get rid of that. And you've heard me say this before, PJ, that we can't be married to anything but our spouse. That's just the way it works. And, and if we are, we're gonna cause ourselves and our people a lot of problem. I just finished a blog for Levi, for our, um, uh, the, the regathering podcast that he's doing for Church Strengthening. It was called How to Kill the Sacred Cow Without Catching the Horns. And that's really what this is about. You know, if it doesn't fit the strategy, be willing to let it go. As long as you're not
0: talking about trunk or treat, I'm with you. Keep going.
1: Trunk or treat, bring it, baby. So the R would be reproducible. In other words, the strategy has just got to be reproducible between disciple makers and disciple making groups. You know, we've got to not just make it to where they can do it, but we've got to teach them the language that it's our responsibility to reproduce uh, the gospel that was given to us. And then the T would be transformational. Um, this is just what the a lost world sees in us. And here's what I would say. If the life change is not happening, then your message is muted. You now you can say all you want to, but if I'm looking at your life and you're cussing me at the baseball field, and then you invite me to come to church and act like everything's perfect, I don't, I don't hear anything you're saying, right? There's got to be a transformational part of it.
0: Yeah. Wow. And so fire emoji right there. Um, yeah, that, that definitely is a, a very memorable phrase to think about that, that that is what people are going to talk about. That's what they see and that's the fruit. So, okay. So in my opinion, um, the church just kind of needs to decide who they are and just be really good at it. Right. Um, mm-hmm. rather than following the, the latest trend, there's always some book. It always seems like there's simple something or somebody, something, I just named a book. Sorry if that offended anybody, but you know, I just want to know in the chat, you're watching this video, you're listening, um, do you agree or disagree with that? You know, that we should be trying to follow the latest trend, um, you know, or should we just decide on who we are? Because that's kind of a big discussion, right? When we go talk with churches, um, Scott, it comes up a lot, just give us the answer. And it's like, well, we can't give you the answer because you got to find your answer, right? I love
1: it, PJ, because really what you're talking about, I mean, you think about a church can be progressive or contemporary. They can be traditional. You can be that mixed bag in the in the middle of that. And the churches who don't know who they are, when people come and they're trying to figure out who you are, mm-hmm. man, it's just a distorted message. And I think we lose a lot of people. I give a great example. There's a church um, here in Buford that um, they've just decided, you know what, we're a traditional church. Now, if you just look at that, you might think, well, a traditional, ah, they're probably kind of stagnant. Listen, they're one of the fastest growing churches in our area because they figured out who they are and they do it very well. Yeah,
0: yeah. We, I had a church um, at a, a previous state that I was a part of and it was like, we're the church that your grandparents go to and that's what we wanna be. And you hear that and you think, that's a terrible idea. Why would you wanna be that? But they were growing and they were reaching new people and they were growing people and they were seeing senior adults baptized and saved. And so that that should give you some glory bumps. All right, so on to the next question. Um, how do we establish an intentional disciple-making culture in our ministry? And then, you know, why would we do that?
1: Yeah, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, PJ, because this is a, a broadcast we're going to do. This is a specific one that's mm-hmm. going to take us 20, 30, 40 minutes. We're going to begin to unpack some of this. But just for right now, I'll, I'll mention Brandon Gindin, uh which I don't really even know how to say Brandon's last name, but he's got a book out and um, disciple making culture. And he shares four components that he says are necessary to build that biblical disciple making culture. And I thought I would mention them here because they're solid. One of them is a biblical foundation, which I mean, it's just kind of a no brainer. If you're going to build a foundation and culture at your church, it needs to be biblical. And particularly what I found, you know, remember I came from 30 years local church. So I've been in the trenches for three decades. When you go to your people, and you're trying to make major shifts, if you're trying to share some things with them based on a book you read or based on something you think is a really cool idea, man, that's a hard sale. But if you share with them something that Jesus did, this is how it happened in the new in the early church. That's a totally different conversation. So biblical foundation's huge. Uh, intentional leadership, we talked a little bit about how important it is to be strategic or intentional. The relational environments, um, they just it's the best soil to grow disciples. You know, anybody who's tried to do the programming in short term or just tried to, you know, do things from a stage, you just know it's less intimate, it's less relational. Been doing that. When you get those relational environments, that's when the explosion happens of disciple makers replicating. And then that leads us to the last one he mentions, which is a reproducible process. So There's two parts of that. One is your process needs to be reproducible. It needs to have the mechanism to reproduce and to start new groups and to new uh, discipleship groups. And and I even think new churches. And I tell you what I'd love to see, PJ, is for people who are watching this broadcast who have a heart to start these new churches, Mm -hmm. to go with some of these dying churches that are closing the doors, that already have fabulous facilities and let's relaunch an incredible gospel um, impact in these places that are, so, you know, instead of just starting something new from from nothing, man, I'd love to see that in some of these churches, help these churches. There's out. a lot
0: of advantages to doing that too. And that's something that we can help you with as consultants. You know, if you have this burning in your heart and you can reach out to one of us and we can say, yeah, there's this church in your area and you can get plugged in and, you know, let's see revitalization, which Dallas is fantastic at. You know, I've sent a couple of guys over to him already and said, if this is your heart, like you need to have a conversation with Dallas.
1: You know? yeah. Yeah, it really is, and if you're looking for, and he can point you to other people. You know, it's the Grove Church Mm -hmm. over in Ackworth is where he is. That's, you know, wasn't doing well. I think they've doubled or tripled in attendance. They're even starting a new campus with another church that was about to close its door. So they're taking over that. So they're expanding the same way. Good stuff.
0: Fantastic. So uh, we already established that you don't want to do trunk or treat. So uh, let's talk about uh, what role programs do play in the life of the
1: church. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, here's the deal. When you read my blog and you see the title, he's like, "Oh, he's, he don't like he don't like programs." Listen, I ain't mad at programs. I'm not. I think that I think that we can use programs, but we gotta just remember what they're for, and they're not for making necessarily the disciples. You're not gonna enrich that disciple making process through programs. It's those relationships. It's the one on one or the one on two or three people where you're engaging and you're doing a life with them until they get to the point where you can launch them and multiply well, programs, they can inspire, they can connect, they can gain interest. They can build knowledge. Um, there's really even some programs that you can even do evangelism with just quick story, PJ, the girl named Lacey at the church, we left really good friends with my wife. Um, we had a deal on Sunday nights called uh, Christian life university, right? we decided we weren't willing to fight that animal and and kill Sunday nights. So I just said, listen, if we're gonna do it, let's just do it well, right? Let's do it where people wanna come. So we went from averaging like 60 people, we'd have 700 or or, or eight different points at our church, a thousand, you know, Sunday night, we'd have 60 or 70, right? And when we started this Christian Life University, it went to 350 or 400 people because it was just 30 or 40 different classes people could take. Well, she came for a program Now she didn't become a strong disciple of Jesus Christ because of the program, but it was an entry mechanism where Mm -hmm. she learned and she like, oh man, I need to come back to the Lord. She built some relationships with the girls in the class, got engaged in over about an 18 month period. She was fired up growing. Her family was coming, her marriage was better. Her kids were in a disciple making process. (laughs) And then what we found is even now when we left, now Lacey's the vacation Bible school director for the church, you know, from a girl who just came because of a program. So what I'm saying is programs can have some value. I'm not saying kill them all, don't do any programs, but you got to know what they're for.
0: Yeah. And programs may be the the start, not the end. And it's much more comfortable for us as ministers um, to, to say, this is the end goal to make this program. And once we've done the program, we check the box, but really if it's the starting point, man, that's, that's really what that program helps us do, especially
1: in that scenario right there with her. And right? it comes back to that first, question you were talking about, is why should we have an intentional disciple-making strategy? Because what's an intentional, it directs the program. It gives focus and vision to the program rather than just this limpless, helpless uh, program that's out there that has no value.
0: Yeah, alignment. I love it. And so in the chat, um, for you that are watching, we would love to hear from you on, you know, are relational environments necessary to make world impacting disciple makers and why you know, like just tell us your opinion on that you know what how are those necessary tell us a little bit more about the the why part type it out there uh, one of the things that we do as a team Scott is that we react to everybody's comments on here we go on and we respond so even if you're typing and you think man they're on to the next point, just take a moment and go ahead and type that in there because we'll get
1: back to you on yeah, that. Yeah, And a great example of that, PJ, I don't know if you remember this night, but the conversation we had and we're like, people are like, yeah, relational environment. Yeah, I'm a disciple maker. And then one pastor says, well, I don't care what y'all say. I'm going to preach the gospel from the stage and I'm going to make disciples as a pastor from the pulpit. And then it, then it just, it became crickets. Well, you know what? We responded to that because mm-hmm. I appreciate that guy's perspective. You know, um, none of us are perfect. We're all still trying to figure this thing out. I do think, There are some things that we figured out that were mistakes and that we can do better. We'd Mm -hmm. love to have those conversations in the chat.
0: Yeah, conversation is key to that. And so, um, you know, Scott, I really want to hear a little bit more from you. You know, what what does the fruit of a healthy church looks like? You know, we're always measuring towards something. You know, it feels like we're sometimes it can get laborious doing the same thing right now. It's high anxiety because everything's different than what we've been doing. But just kind of tell us about what that fruit of a healthy church really looks like.
1: Absolutely, I'll close out our time with this. So I was at First Baptist Church in Haughton, Louisiana, northwest corner, uh, lead pastor's name is Gavin Spinney, one of my closest friends. And when we got there, church was averaging, I don't remember exactly now, 200 to 250. And uh, within five years, it was just, I'm talking about exploded. So mm. we were averaging attendance of high 600s, sometimes 700 people, you know, in the first five years. Well, the next five years, year six through 10, We still brought in 179 people per year for the next five years, year six through 10. And we didn't grow 179 per year for the next five years. And we're still averaging around 700, man. We knew there was a problem. Uh, We knew it was discipleship. So I shifted into what we call the equipping pastor role uh, he and I both went back to get our doctoral degrees to, really for that purpose, to figure out what did we do to stop the bleeding here. So we had fast growth, it stalled. And then uh, what happened out of my doctoral work is I implemented what was called the erupt strategy. Again, it was a customized disciple making strategy for that particular church. And we, when we, when <laughs> it was just phenomenal because we we added a connection class or a discovery class, a new member class. So we began to brand who we were in that first class. And listen, I was in every one of them. So this wasn't one of those. We just kind of farmed out to somebody and we were doing it just to get by. Um, I'm not saying I'm the best of the best, but I was one of the best we had. So I I was making sure that I was in there engaging with those people. And we ended up connecting, going from connecting 26% of new members to 86% of new members. And that held true for the last eight years that I was there. So what I'm telling in this broadcast. The reason I'm so passionate about it is because I lived it and I, I beat my head against the wall and I ate the rocks. It was, it was a struggle the whole way through. But here's the, some of the fruit that we saw, PJ, literally there are people because it's a, a military base. You have people from all over the world. God was bringing the nations to us. There are people who were changing their retirement so they could stay in Halton because of the church. Well, you just don't hear that very often. I'm I'm talking about people, they can go to Germany and they can go to Hawaii and they go anywhere they want to retire, right? High level of military. And they were choosing to stay in Halton because of their relational engagement in the intentional process that the church had. Well, generosity increase. You can look at that budget, continue to go. Matter of fact, uh, certainly wouldn't give numbers, but I was talking to them when I went back to Louisiana a couple of weeks back, and they were telling me that they're actually averaging more money budget-wise now than they did last year in wow. the middle of a pandemic. Well, how is that possible? Because of the generosity grows as disciples are being made and as they're being, they're multiplied. Community engagement was, was growing. Uh, church member ownership of ministry. <laughs> Quick example, when I would go into hospitals, there was a standing joke with all of my life group leaders and I'd go in and they'd inevitably be standing around the, the table, around the bed of the guy who's about to have surgery and they're praying for him. And I'd go, man, you stole my prayer, dude. Hold on. yo, Wait, 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 wait. You know, but that was the joke because they didn't need me to be there to pray. They knew that in their life group, if somebody was going to have surgery or something devastating was going on, they knew. And it wasn't always the life group leader. Yeah, it could be Joe Blow that was just a member was going to be praying for them. So man, evangelism blew up. I told you, you know, about how um, Lacey came to be in there and lots of other people. But we were baptizing over a hundred people every year. And here's the deal: we went from being, gosh, I won't use the name of this this group because I don't want to hurt them. I love the group. I love what they're doing in evangelism. But it was a it was a drama ministry, right? Where you walk through room by room, mm-hmm. and then there's a big evangelistic appeal at the end, right? So we were seeing a thousand people come through, hundred people saved, but we were only seeing one or two people baptized. Mm-hmm. So in, when, we, when we chose to become a disciple-making church, we did away with that and we started focusing on our evangelism. Still, Gavin from the stage is the most incredible front stage evangelistic pastor I've ever been with. But in those life groups, that's where evangelism was happening building relationships, sharing Jesus, but then connecting them into a group where they could grow ongoing as a believer and multiply the process. And I'm just telling you, PJ, it works.
0: Yeah. Well, and it's so contagious when you see it. When you see life change in another human's eyes and it works, I mean, there's nothing like it, right? That's why we get up. That's why we do this you know, and, and we want to be there for churches because we want every pastor to see that. We want every pastor to look out in that congregation and see life change, but also that reproduction part. How do we get more people in and how do we own it? And it's a great example of how, you know, a program had success. um, But really the long-term success was more sustainable when the people were bought in, when the people's lives were there. And that's what we mean by relational, you know, we're not dogging any one different thing. We know it takes all those things to make a church function. Um, But we really love seeing that life change. And that's what we're about here in Georgia and Georgia Baptist churches. And we get to do it because of uh, cooperative giving um, and the support of our churches in Georgia. And we always want to be thankful for that as well.
1: It is PJ. and, And as we close out here, I just say a word that I hope that you all that are watching realize the only reason we're able to get on here and do this is because each of us on our team, we tithe to our church and our churches are giving to the cooperative program. And that cooperative program is the reason that this broadcast is here and that we're able to gather these best practices. And listen, it is the heartbeat of every second of every day of this discipleship team is to help you, not to sell you something, not to tell you what to do, but to just help. So if we can, man, contact us. We'd love to be a part of that. And uh, we we do this nearly weekly. Love to see y'all again on another broadcast. So keep joining us. If you're not a member of Georgia Baptist Discipleship Facebook group, listen, join that. Um, answer a couple of questions, we'll admit you. And I'm telling you, we are putting incredible stuff up every week with some of the best leaders in the state. So y'all have a great day. We'll look forward to viewing and discussing another topic next week. Bye y'all.